Yeah, you doing all right? Good stuff. Let's give it up for the worship team. What a great start to our day. Thank you, guys. You're going to get to hear from them at the end of our service as well, so we're excited um, by the opportunity and just how it's good to be with you. If you're a guest today, I want to welcome you, especially if you are now making Trinity Church part of your weekend plans. Thank you for being here, and hopefully the person that brought you is being a great host and making sure you know where to go and where to be, and we're grateful that you're here today. We, you join us today in this series that we're calling This is a Football. And it's taken from Vince Lombardi's famous words, talking with his Green Bay Packers after they had lost uh, NFL championship, and they're looking into this new season. And rather than start with all these great new ideas, he says, let's just go back to basics. And that's really what we've been about these first couple of months together, is getting on the same page with God's objectives for his church. Trinity Church is Jesus's church. And so we want to know what he wants for us and how we ought to live his way. And so it's been great. We're excited that you're here today. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 is where we're going to be. If you have notes in your worship folder, you can get those out. That'll help you kind of track with us a little bit along the way. We'll kind of move forward. Now, here's what we've done. We have seen some really um, powerful themes throughout the book of Ephesians. We have looked at the first three chapters. We're halfway in. And as we have, we've found out, and as even as Gail was speaking today, we found out some things that are true of us once we are in Christ. Once that is true and that we have responded to his invitation of love and forgiveness and even adoption into his family, then things are new about us. And what I wanted to do is I want to take some time to let us kind of have a moment to reflect on that today. Take a look up at the screen that's in your notes These are some of the descriptive words that are used about you now that you're in Christ. You are redeemed, you are valuable, you are chosen, you are made alive, you are loved, you are made new, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're saved, you're included. So what I wanted you to do today, that that, um, hello my name is card in your program, if you want to get that out. What I want you to do today is this, is that rather than the name that you might go by, that we might know you best, I would rather you today take some time to process, and maybe it's not even one of those 10 descriptors, maybe there's something different, but something that resonates with you that is true now that you're in Christ. And I want you to write that on that card. Hello, my name is now this. And once you've done that during our service today, at the end of the service, like Bill was mentioning, we have these posters, we have banners on the wall, we have a couple in the back. I'd love for you on your way out today to take that sticker, put it on one of the posters, put it on one of the banners, and then what we'll do next week is we're actually going to put those in the lobby. And then as you walk in, they'll be on display. And what a great collective reminder, this is what it means to be in Christ. So do that during our time together today on your way out you'll have an opportunity to, um, to put those on one of those banners or posters. And I think it's just going to be a great way for us to remind ourselves. And now that we know whose we are, what does that mean? What does that look like? So today we're kind of moving into new territory. I, I'm, I'm great at math. I knew that chapters one through three is the first half of Ephesians and four through six, the second. Okay, it was pretty crazy. As we move into the second part, we're going to look at some, what I just think is a very natural segue, a very natural cause and effect. If chapters one through three present what it means to be in Christ, what it means 
to understand whose you are, then chapters 4 through 6 push on the idea of now what does that mean? What does that look like? What do I do with this truth over here that now should have change in my life over here? What is the cause and effect? And I feel like sometimes there are too many that make such a strong distinction between the theology of one through three and the practicality of four through six that they forget that the reason why we live a certain way relates all back to whose we are, relates all back to who our identity in Christ is. That's what fuels this new life. And this phrase we're gonna look at today, how we are to live flows from whose we are. How we are to live flows from whose we are. And let me tell you more of what I mean by that. Check it out in your notes today. Number one, as a member of Jesus's team, preserve our unity. As a member, as a member I'm sorry, of Jesus's team, preserve our unity. Now, we've kind of used, obviously, the metaphor, you can't miss it, right? It's football, okay? And if you're a guest here today, I promise it's not normally like this, all right? We, this is our series, it's what we're doing, and it's great. They've been so wonderful to be so thematic here in the worship center. But the reality is, is using that metaphor of, as it were, being on Jesus's team, now there's some directives today. Now we're going to actually be given some instructions of what to do. And the first is that aspect of preserve our unity. Chapter four, verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, and when you were called in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, here's the deal. We are going to look at three Parts. We're taking chapters one, chapter four, verses one through 16 and breaking it into thirds. Each one of these parts is its own message. So today, just for you, I'm gonna teach three full, le- no, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. But, but we really are gonna have to kind of skim the surface to keep moving, but there is so much, even in these first six verses. Let me talk about the highlights, at least today, as we dive in. The first verse in chapter four really frames the second half of the book. Look at that phrase, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. That's what Paul is urging the Ephesian believers. Live a life, and it's interesting, the word worthy is is intimidating to us. Live a life worthy, okay, Todd, I am not. (laughs) Now what do I do? But that word in the original Greek language actually was a word that talks about balance. Live a life that is consistent with the calling that you have. And that's what we've been talking about throughout, like at least laying down the foundation here, and now we're going to get to the application over here, but that verse just frames the whole idea. Live a life consistent in line with whose you are. The problem is this. People are going to look at, you might be tempted to look at the rest of our series, chapters four through six, as the rules. Okay, over here in the first third, or first half, here was all the grace Here is the the idea of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. Oh, but there's the hook. I was waiting for it. Here's the rules. Here's all the stuff you got to do now. 
And I will say what is so sad to me, and I've seen it in my own life, so I don't say this critically like, how dare you? But what is so sad for me is when people believe that that is what Christianity is. Biblical Christianity is simply exchanging one set of rules, or maybe before you knew Christ, there was no rules. You just did as you please for just a new set of rules. This is now what you have to do. Here's the new checklist. And I go, oh, how sad, because look at what we've looked at. You have been made new. You have been made alive. You have been adopted as a son or a daughter into the family of God with a status as his heir. It's not God did something and now here's the rule book. And, it, and as we unpack the next few weeks, my hope is that if you're here today, you'll begin to see it through a new light. Think of it this way. Think of the family scenario if a family adopted a child into their home, which is obviously not unique. A lot of you have. Maybe you were even adopted into someone's home. Think of it this way. Think of a family that have, has adopted a four-year-old into their home. What are the realities that are true the moment that the judge signs off? Well, two things. Number one, positionally, this child now is not from another family or with no family at all. This child now has parents. Secondly, this child has a new name. Those things both happen at that transaction, objectively true, where literally moments before it wasn't, now moments after it is. And what if it was like this? What if this family adopted this four-year-old, they have a new legal standing, a new name, bring them home to their home and say, go at it. Just however you want to live, and whatever you are doing before you knew us, just keep it up. And I'm sure we'll all be fine. And, and you look at that logic and you go, that's a horrible idea. No one would ever do that. You, you would do those first two steps. You would have a, a new legal standing for your child and then they'd receive your name. Those things would happen. But as you bring them home, you would say, this is how we work together. This is the culture of our home. This is how we do life. You would expect that layer of understanding, and it would be some common things. It'd be the house rules in a good way. It's like, hey, dinner before dessert. That's how we work. And we wash and brush our teeth before we go to bed. And we wear clothes that semi-match, at least. You know, let's go for that. And, uh, and when we have a problem with a sibling, we don't duke it out, we talk it out. I mean, this is house rules. This is our culture. And a family would do that, a parents would do that because they would say, though our, our family culture isn't perfect, we believe it's a good one and, and one that we want you to lean into, that we want you to join and become a part of. Not just in legal standing, not just in name, but in the way you live. Why would God, our good, good father, not do the same? Your legal standing has changed once you are in Christ. You are now no longer what you were. You are now made new, made alive. You're redeemed. And, and there's a new name that you wear. Back to the cards that you're filling out today, the name tags, that's what that is. That is your new name now that you're in Christ. So those, those things are objectively true, but, but now what? You, you come into the family of God and now it's like, hey, whatever you're doing before, just keep it up. You got a new name? You're a new legal standing, but other than that, we just think you're great. Go. That would be horrible. And not horrible because it would create so much disunity and friction, even though it would. Here's why it'd be horrible. It'd be horrible because it wouldn't be best for you. 
your father designs a culture, designs a way for you to live his life in his world because it's the best life possible. What's so sad, and I have had definitely growing up in a church environment, I, and this is not something that has to happen. I pray it doesn't happen with my kids. But there definitely were long seasons in my walk with the Lord. I thought for sure it was just this list of rules. That's all Christianity is. Getting together like this on a Sunday and then just go try harder all week long. And it was so oppressive. And, and I thought that the things that God did, because there were, there were some things that were easy to do. Okay, God says do X. Okay, I can do X. God says do Y. And it's like, but I don't want to do Y. I want to do Z. And now all of a sudden we have a conflict. We have a problem. You know, what do I do with this? Then for the longest time, I just thought God is stingy. He's keeping me from what I really want to do. And it was just over the course of the relationship, over the course of building trust with a heavenly father, being able to realize he's always had my best in mind. If you're in the room today and you're a parent, that's all I have to say. You've always had your child's best in mind. Now you are flawed And there were times that you thought you were doing something that actually wasn't all that constructive, but your good, good, perfect, heavenly father is not. So what he has for you, what he's going to lay out over the next three chapters is with the interests of your best interest, even if you don't know it yet. And as we unpack the second half, I can't wait to get into more and more of this as we realize that God, out of his goodness, out of his love, he says, you've joined the family And now I want to show you, this is how the family functions. This is how we live. Look at the first phrase. Look at the very first words. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. What a great way just to start out. Be thoughtful of others. Be aware of them. Be more about them than you are yourself. That's the beginning of this new culture. These first six verses really bang the drum of our unity. That's that, that last part was really thick about that idea of unity. And here's the interesting thing I hope you picked up. Paul never once said, develop, cultivate, or create unity within the family of God. Paul identified it's already there because it centers around the person of Jesus. We don't have to do something to somehow add to the unity. Guess what he tells us to do? Keep the unity preserve the unity, and not with any small amount of effort. We'll look at that in a minute. Look at the descriptors of what we have in common. What makes us one are these things. We are one body. Jesus's body is not segmented or or fractured. Even though we might take residence in places literally all over the world, we are one. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit that comes from Jesus This reality that fills us, we have that in common. There's one hope, the hope of heaven. There's one Lord, his name is Jesus. There's one faith, meaning we have a common approach. We all share the reality of coming to God through faith. There's one baptism. There's a common way that we're identified with the people of God. And there is one God, one father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. That's where our unity comes from. We don't have to pray that we would have unity. We have to pray to keep it. We have to work to keep it. We have to work to maintain it. 
Look at that phrase, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. I want to say, by the way, look at that list we just looked at, these one things. Isn't it powerful? I don't think I've ever seen this before in my study of Ephesians. Here we are, eight messages into this book, and five of the eight all explicitly mention all three members of the triune Godhead. I keep bringing this up because I really want you to grab that Ephesians presents a three-in-one type of God. Not to be missed. It's not a smallish issue to Paul. He wants them to know there is a father, there is a son, there is a spirit. And it's impressive to me how often that theme is coming up in this book. Back to this phrase, make every effort. The original Greek word there, I like the way it can also be defined, spare no effort. That kind, of, that kind of resounds in me in kind of a unique way. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, I always think of that verse, as far as it depends on you, keep the peace. Live at peace with all people, as far as it depends on you. Look at the notes. This is what we're after. Our unity is not something we're called to derive, called to form, but what we are called to do is to spare no effort in keeping and preserving what God has done to unify us. This is what we're after. And here's the interesting thing I want you to grab hold of. I think the Bible consistently in the way that there are imperative verbs, meaning in the way that there are commands or directives, always encourages us, always draws us to do what we are responsible for, but no more. Like even that phrase from Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, Spare no effort to maintain the unity, but there's a point at which you're not responsible for what other people won't do. This, this concept, as you get to know me, you'll find this concept outlined in the book Boundaries is so powerful to me because it liberates you from trying to do things you can't control, but also to realize what actually is your responsibility. So as it relates to you, this is a great message today because it's a me and a us message all at the same time. That in your relationships, there are people that right now, as believers, you're not living in unity with. The Bible clearly says today, spare no effort to try to maintain and keep that unity. There is a definite directive, definitely something we're called to do. Think of that same family. Remember that family we talked about? Let's say that now they're a family of three, or a family of five, uh, three children, now that this four-year-old's been adopted. The interesting thing is that family is very legally understood as a family by, by our government, but more so importantly from God. Under God's design, they, they are a family. But just because they are a family in a legal sense and even a, a design sense doesn't mean they're going to act like one. They have inherent unity based on legal documents, based on birth certificates, based on adoption papers, based on a wedding certificate, marriage license. They have all the legal stuff, but that doesn't mean they function in unity. That's what Paul is saying. Even though you understand that you are unified, you need to do things to act like it. It won't naturally take place. It won't naturally be the way we treat each other. So what happens? When we're not in line together, we need to spare no effort to be so. Here's how I see this issue of unity. I see two polar sides. The one side is kind of going, yeah, I think we're, you know, the the family of God. And, you know, just do your thing. I'll do mine. We'll be fine. And just, or even like I'm super, you know, uh, frustrated with you, but I'm not going to deal. I'm just going to let it be because it's not that big a deal. God would say, no, there's a problem here. 
that you need to make every effort to be. But then there's another polar extreme over here that says, we have to be unified in every detail of everything that we believe. This is how it went down. There was once a man in San Francisco walking on the Golden Gate Bridge, and he saw a man out over the bridge getting ready to jump. So he stopped and he said, surely it can't be that bad. You know that God loves you. Well, the man about to jump, he got a tear in his eye. And he said, are you a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu? And the fellow said, I'm a Christian. Me too. Are, are you Protestant or Catholic? I'm Protestant. Oh, I, I am too. What denomination? I'm Baptist. Oh, so am I. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Uh, Northern Baptist. Well, that's a miracle. I am too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? A Northern Conservative Baptist. Me too. Are you a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or a Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? I'm a Northern Conservative Reform Baptist, Carl Ripley. Me too. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? I'm Northern Conservative ba- uh, Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. Oh, so am I. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1897? Or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And then one guy said to the other, die, heretic, and push him off the bridge. <laughs> Two extremes, right? On the one hand, acting like unity is not a big deal. Do as you please. We'll be, all be fine. no. On the other hand, going, we have to cross every T and dot every I to actually be together. Uh-uh. What draws us together? Jesus. We major on the majors. Jesus is the reason for our unity. And he is the one that pulls us together. So here's the question for you today. So what do you do about this? Like, where do you start? It can be overwhelming to think, God, how do I solve all the unity problems of your church around the world? You can't. But here's what you can do. You can start at home. I'm a big fan, and you'll hear this more and more, of concentric circles. I think that's how our influence generally goes. And the circle that you should have the most influence over are those that you live with under your roof. Start at home. If there are are believers in Jesus in your home, spare no effort to maintain that unity. Next circle out would be maybe those in your home group or your Bible study here at Trinity. Spare no effort to keep the peace of the Spirit. Next phrase out, maybe it's your ministry team you work with here at Trinity Church. Uh, Maybe you're involved in in a great organization where it's Christ-centered. Spare no effort to maintain the unity. Maybe it's Trinity Church as a whole. We think of this body who collectively not only meets on Sunday, but all the other things that we're about. We are the church. This is a campus. This isn't the church. You are it. That's the group of people then that we go, God, I want to make every effort. Maybe you have influence to the the West Coast. Jesus' churches here on the West Coast, maybe the Inland Empire, maybe the Church of America, maybe the church internationally, as far as it depends on you, where your sphere of influence is, spare no effort to maintain the peace. Remember, Jesus prayed for this for us. John chapter 17, Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one. This is what he was after. This matters and it's worth 
it's worth preserving. I will tell you, in all my church experience growing up, serving at two churches before I came to HDC, I come to this church and all of a sudden, this is the very first time I had ever seen this be important. And I would hear the top leadership pastors at High Desert Church say, it is a mandate, it is a directive to us that we have to maintain our unity. It's not a question of if we have it, it's simply how do we preserve it. And a group of people who actually made efforts to do that, I'd never seen that before, but I realized for the very first time that's actually what we've been called to do all along. Let's keep moving. Today, number one in our notes, we are called to preserve our unity. Number two in your notes, as a member of Jesus' team, understand our diversity. As a member of Jesus' team, understand our diversity. Let's continue, chapter four, verse seven. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now look at this parenthetical thought. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Verse 11, so Christ himself, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Okay, once again, lots of stuff going on. Let's highlight a couple ideas. The first, look at this quotation of Psalm 68. It's really, to me, a very, very interesting thing to try to get our minds around, but once we do, I think we're better off. Take a look. This is the psalm as it relates earlier in in your Old Testament. This is how you would read it. When you ascended on high, you took many captives, you received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Okay, now, looking at that and now looking at what we just read, you'll note there's actually some differences. Meaning that Paul, as he's quoting the Old Testament here in Ephesians 4, there's actually some word changes. One is minor. He's changed the words you to he. In Psalm 68, the psalm is about a conquering king, a conquering Yahweh, who is now ready to finally, as he has been throughout the nations, he's finally coming into, in a royal way, into his temple at Jerusalem. And that's what that phrase is about when you, this is who David's writing of, when you are to do this. Paul is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He, he did this. He is this individual. And that's what you have to read as you look at the former covenant, as you look at the Old Testament, all of these realities kept looking forward to, kept pointing toward Messiah who is coming. And so Paul says, make no mistake, Jesus is the conquering king that Psalm 68 was written about. So that inversion from you to he, it seems minor. By the way, that parenthetical thought kind of explains again, this is Jesus. This is who, Paul, this is who David was writing of before he even knew who Jesus was. This is what that refers to. That's really not that big a deal. The bigger deal is actually the second part. In that quote, you'll notice that um, the word there originally in Psalm 68 is he receives gifts from people. And then quoted here in Ephesians 4, he gives gifts to people. So it's a change of, of a word that's pretty much means one thing and the other one means pretty much it's opposite. If you don't know the difference between giving and receiving, talk to any two-year-old who has a toy. They know the difference, okay? They very much like to receive. They very much not like to give, okay? 
So there's a huge difference. It is literally the opposite word. So now commentators are stuck with the situation. What on earth do you do with that? And, and I surely don't want to come across as though I have this all nailed, but I was surprised some of the commentaries, and I have very conservative people I read, they were saying, maybe Paul just misquoted Psalm 68. Paul, who is so, he was a Pharisee. This guy was schooled in the former covenant in the Old Testament. He knew it backwards and forwards. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. Maybe they said that there is a Hebrew word that actually has a reflective type of meaning. It can mean both. Huh? May, and they just went through every type of scenario. And as I walked through, I kind of thought, because I, I said, God, I wanna, I've, I've struggled with this passage before. This isn't the first time. And so as I got here, I said, God, I really want to understand what you're saying here. Because y- y- here's, here's the bigger point. If you're here today and you're kind of checking out what biblical Christianity is, let me make a very clear statement to you. It is not a check your brain at the door kind of belief system. It is not that we'll come to hard passages in the Bible and say, there's really no good explanation. Just believe God and it's all good. We're going to say, no, no, I really think that there is a, an understandable un, um, uh, you know, impression or, or truth to what is here. We just have to dig a little bit. We got to find it. By the way, don't get me wrong, though, to think that somehow Christi- biblical Christianity is also an intellectual ascent. If you just get enough facts, you're good. I can't tell you how many people I've sat down with and they can say the gospel back to me better than I said it to them. But they will still say, but Todd, for me to embrace this, for me to take this step means X, Y, Z in my life. They get it. They get the reality of putting their faith in Christ means that there's a a reality of surrender. They're gonna have to give up the reins of their life and they just go, I'm not ready to do that. So it's both. It's truth that can be known and it's faith that we have to engage. But I would hate for you to think that we get to tough passages in the Bible and just throw up our hands and go, it's probably just a misquotation. Here's the simple thing, it makes sense to me. Remember we said Psalm 68 is a conquering king who has been in these different places. He's been to Sinai, he's been there and now he's coming into Jerusalem. Paul's saying that conquering king is Jesus. What would conquering kings do when they would go and they would defeat a people they would loot, they would pillage, they would take what is now theirs and they would take it back to their people and what would they do? They'd distribute it. They would take and they would give. They would receive and they would hand out. And to me that makes sense, so let's ask the question, so if Jesus is this conquering king, when he descended, who did he come to, to, take, to, to destroy, to, ta- to uh, take victory over? Satan, sin, and death. I don't know if you knew, but those are your enemies. Satan, sin, and death. So Jesus conquers them, and doing so, as it were, he pillages them, and as his, he ascends back to the throne, he gives gifts to his people for the purpose of building them up that they might be the body of Christ. That works. That makes sense to me. And that's the beauty of this passage is that we're seeing what Paul is saying is Jesus has given gifts to his people so that they can do what he's called them to do. Now, in this reality, I think this is an interesting passage as it relates to people will often identify Ephesians 4 as one of the spiritual gifts passage. The the passages in the New Testament that outline spiritual gifts 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12. Here, Ephesians 4 is usually put in that group, and then 1 Peter 4. The others, though, all have in common that they identify these are the types of ways that God has built people to serve his body. 
Ephesians 4, though, is very different because it doesn't really talk about the types of gifts. It talks about gifted leaders. Remember we read that? He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. He's talking about leadership roles. And so as I was thinking through this concept, and look at the purpose. What does it keep coming back to? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. That, that's the focal point. Well, when you think about this, to me, this passage in particular kind of resonates with the idea of Jesus picking team captains, as it were. These are leadership roles. And so he identifies some leaders among his body. And here's this really gets cool. Check out your notes. This is what this word, uh, I won't even try to pronounce it, related to, this is the original Greek language though, this is the word related to, to equip. To equip the people, what? Exact adjustment which enables the individual parts to work together in correct order. Another synonym would be the word alignment, brings alignment. Whenever I've looked at this passage before, I thought the idea of the equipping of the saints, the equipping of God's people was a little bit more like resourcing, right? If you're going to go into the back country, you need to be equipped first. You need stuff to be able to survive out there for two weeks. That was the word image in my mind. It's actually very different. This word is actually, this Greek word is only found one time in the entire Bible, and it's right here in Ephesians 4. It's a very specific word, and look at what it does. The exact adjustment which enables the individual parts to work together. It's a management word. It's a leadership word. To equip the saints means to take all the moving parts and to be able to focus them towards the same goal in alignment. I love that word picture. It's so cool, and that's what God has given these gifted leaders to do in his church. All the gifts are important, but leadership is supposed to do this, to bring the parts into order where they're working in alignment. Look at the other word translated to build up the body of Christ. This word, it's very literally, every time we see the word oikos or a word derived from it, it always means house or home. Of some, and then it's got different derivations of it. So this word has at the front of it, you see the word oiko in it. So it's got this idea of a house. So it's a building, an edifice serving as a home. But watch this. Figuratively, it means where the Lord is at home. So track this idea for just a second. Here's what we're talking about. Why did God give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, why did he give them to the church? To provide a leadership gift to help bring all the individual parts into alignment. Why? So that Jesus would want to come and make his home in them. To build up the body of Christ that Jesus would come and reside in us. We dare not think that as Trinity Church, that God is going to do something powerful among us if we don't first have a kind of home where he obviously resides. This is what fuels, this is what powers his people, is his presence among us. To be able to do things far beyond whatever you and I in our own efforts, our own uh, best energies could ever pull off, Jesus comes, he resides among us, and his power is made perfect in people's lives. That's what we're after. And that's the job of leadership, to bring alignment so that we are working all on the same page, all in the same direction, and that Jesus, as it were, is at home here. That is such a cool picture. That is what is going on, and that's what is happening in terms of bringing these diverse people and diverse gifts together. And that brings us 
to our third point today. Number three, as a member of Jesus's team, grow in our maturity. As a member of Jesus's team, grow in our maturity. Now that reads funny, doesn't it? You don't usually think of the word maturity collectively. Grow in your maturity. That's actually what I first wrote down on my notes. But as I read this passage, I thought, no, this passage is not an individualistic passage. This is an us. Let's read it. We're mid-sentence in verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, from the head, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Like I said, message number three right there, okay? Very, very quickly, just to pull it together today. Here's what we find. There is an expectation that as a body, as as Jesus's collective body, we, not you, not me, we would grow in our maturity. And by the way, if you're sitting there going, wow, that is rocket science, Okay, just think again of your kids. There is an expectation that the kinds of chores that initially you need to help them with, like brushing their teeth, that over time they'd get it. You understand that you need to help a three-year-old brush his teeth. A 13-year-old, we have a problem. We would expect maturity. That's the point. And there, we grow up into these things. And we do so, in this case, we understand that we do so collectively our maturity, not a solo sport. Unity is mentioned again, this, the idea that we keep this, preserve this unity. What I loved was, it seemed as though Paul is actually giving a definition, giving us an understanding of what Christian maturity looks like. Look at that phrase, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Remember last week in Paul's prayer in chapter three, we actually saw a phrase that looked just like it. The phrase said, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Remember the way that we said that we could pray for other people is that they would be filled to the brim, that they would be filled to such a way that there's no room for anything else to distract them from the relationship with Christ. That seems like Paul's same definition. Spiritual maturity, Jesus' maturity looks like Jesus. Let that be our end game. Let that be our goal. When we have taken, I think at times, spiritual maturity and made way more of it, of that it looks like X, Y, Z, and we start classifying stuff. No, no, no. Christian maturity looks like Jesus. And just because I've been a Christian for a long time does not mean I'm mature. It is consistently coming back to God. Look at these areas of my life. Are they looking more like Jesus or not? That's the distinctive question. That's the question to ask. So within this reality, um, as we're processing this whole idea, this being filled to the brim, think of the people, think of the residual effect of that reality. How pleasing is that to our heavenly father when we look more and more like his one of a kind son? We see that all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is our example, our big brother that we're to live like. 
It blesses his heart. Think of the people in your life that are blessed when you look more like Jesus. Your spouse, definitely blessed when you look more like him, when you act more like him. Your kids, definitely blessed when you behave more like Jesus in your world. Your boss, your employees, your teacher, your students, your coach, fill in the blank, your neighbors, your extended family, their lives are blessed as you look and behave more and more like Jesus. This is what we're after. This is Jesus' maturity, and this is what Paul is saying. This is what it looks like. And look how they're going to get there. He gives them the antithesis. The opposite of Jesus' maturity is being spiritual infants, blown and tossed by every type of kind of wild idea. Oh, I'm going to go chase that. Uh Uh-uh. That's spiritual immaturity. Maturity says, I'm going to continue to grow like Christ. And look how we're going to do it. I love this phrase, by truthing in love. That's very literally the word. It's, it's translated for us, speaking the truth, by truthing in love. It's the way that we're going to talk to one another, the way that we're going to treat one another, is we're going to speak the truth in love. And look at that last phrase. It's a reiteration of what we read a minute ago. As each part grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. That phrase, grows itself up in love, is that same concept again, being built up. It's that where Jesus would want to come and reside. Family, this is what we want. We want to be a group of Jesus followers where Jesus wants to come and reside. We have unity. It's already there. That's why this is such a we passage today. This is not about you and your individual walk with Christ so much. It's about you and the people sitting around you. We want to be a church, want to be a people where Jesus wants to come and reside. And the way we do that is we think about and focus and make every effort in our unity. Here's that game plan for this week. Spare no effort to maintain unity with God's people. Spare no effort to maintain unity with God's people. And even as I say that, there are probably names and faces that are coming to mind. And I would just want to throw out to you, that is then your marching orders this week. That's your next step. Who are the people in your life that you need to take that seriously and say, God, I'm going to spare no effort to be on the same page, to have unity with this person in my life, this other believer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are not left, as it were, without an utter, without a, a, a rudder. I said utter, that's awesome. We don't have that. We're not left without a rudder. We're not left without direction. You, your word provides so much clarity and purpose for us. And we thank you for it today. God, would Trinity Church be this kind of people? Would our unity, our rally cry be around the person of Christ? And in that, would we live out and understand our diversity? God, as we grow up, as we mature and look more and more like Christ, what a winsome group of people we will be. When people see us, they will want to know what on earth has changed you, and we will all collectively say, his name is Jesus. If you're here today and you would honestly say, no, but I can't say that yet, I've never really responded to the invitation of forgiveness and love that Jesus has made, I want to encourage you can do that. You can do that right here, right now. By admitting that you're a sinner, by believing that Jesus is the only Savior available, this Jesus we've talked about today, and choosing 
choosing to walk his way and say, Jesus, I hand over the, and surrender my life. I want to live your life now. You can make that decision and you can find your unity with us around the person of Christ. God, we love you. Thank you for who you are. And we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.